I'll preach long sermons wherever we are, so I better get going. <laughs> so let's, let's get moving on it. John chapter 4, and we're going to look at the second half of the story of the woman at the well. A famous story, a famous woman who changed history by letting her eyes be opened by her Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you weren't here last week, you can go back and listen to that. I won't re-preach that whole sermon, though everyone knows I struggle with that because I want you to know the context here. But let me just, uh, I'll just give you the highlights. Uh, Jesus had been to this point in John's gospel, in his story. Uh, He had been primarily in Jerusalem and dealing with the religious leaders of the day, religious Jewish people. And then uh, he, he senses that God is calling him to move from that place uh, to go back to Galilee, which is uh, northern uh, Judah. And it, it, in between that, geographically, you've got sort of Jerusalem, and then you've got sort of Galilee. There is an area that's not occupied by Jews, but Samaritans, called Samaria. And the Samaritans were despised by the Jewish people. They had intermarried hundreds of years before with um, other ethnicities that the Assyrians, when they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, had brought in. They had started to worship other gods. And so the Jews, and they're wrong on this, and Jesus will show them that they're wrong. The Jews saw them as unclean, unworthy of God, unworthy of salvation. And they despised them. For, for their idolatrous worship of other gods besides Yahweh, for their intermarrying with other races other than uh, uh, the people of God and Israel. And so there was this deep tension, and it went both ways. It cut both ways. And so often if you were going from the southern part of Israel to the northern Galilee part, you would walk around Samaria so that you didn't have to even encounter one of those unclean, despised people. But we saw last week, God the Father told Jesus that he had to go through Samaria. He had to. And Jesus obeyed and listened and he went and he encounters a woman at a well. And this woman has gone to the well by herself in the heat of the day. At noon, it says, in the middle of the day. Why? We come to find out it's because she was, even amongst other Samaritans, despised as unclean. Because she'd been married five times. And the man she's living with now is not her husband. So she's the despised, the unclean of the despised and the unclean. And Jesus encounters her at this well, this historic well, Jacob's well. Jacob is the father of Israel and the 12 tribes. And it's here that Jesus tells her, it's okay. I can make you clean. And he speaks with her and he teaches her and he explains that true worshipers worship not in a place, not because of what they were born into, but that there's this new birth to a new kind of worship in spirit and in truth, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what your background. And that's where we left off. She's seen that this isn't just a man, this isn't just a Jew, this isn't just a teacher, this isn't even just a prophet, this is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of her and the world. And so that's where we'll pick it up. She's, she's realized this. So we're in chapter 4, verse 27. It says this. Just then, his disciples arrived. Why weren't they with him? He had sent them to get food. Because he was not only thirsty, which is why he's at the well, he's also hungry. They've been traveling He'd sent them to get food. They come back from that, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Like, not excited amazed, but baffled. And they awkwardly sit there, and they stare. Yet no one said, what do you want? No one asked the woman what she wanted. And no one asked, why are you talking with her? No one asked Jesus. So they didn't talk to Jesus, they didn't talk to her, they just stared there amazed. Because this was unnatural to be talking to a woman, particularly if you were a rabbi, to be talking to a Samaritan if you were a Jew. They were amazed. Look at verse 28. 
Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people. The same people who wouldn't even let her walk with them to the well. She went and told them about what she had encountered. Verse 29. Come, see. See what? A man. What kind of man? A man who told me everything I ever did. Subtext. And didn't run away. Didn't call me unclean. Didn't shun me. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. Because of her testimony, they believed enough to walk in the dead heat of the day all the way out to the well to see this man. They believed enough because of her testimony. Verse 31. In the meantime, so, so in the meantime, this is so important, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. Okay, you're supposed to laugh at that. In the meantime is sort of like, let's split screen this. Two things are happening simultaneously. That's what in the meantime means in the Greek. In the meantime, simultaneously these things are happening. A, a Samaritan woman has encountered Jesus and she's run to her town. She's left her water jar. Remember, we talked about that last week. Her prized possession, probably the most expensive thing she owns. She's left it there because she's found something even greater than just regular water. She's found living water. She runs back to the city and she tells everybody that hates her, her enemies, about Jesus and the life he is promising. In the meantime, at the same time, the disciples, though they were amazed and confused, they don't ask him what he was doing or why he was talking. Instead, what do they do? Hey, Rabbi, have you eaten anything? Are you okay? This is funny. Listen, all I have to say to the married <laughs> couples in the room is like Allie, my wife, and Big Max is really important to our marriage. <laughs> this is true. I asked her if I could share this. Allie loves Big Macs. <laughs> she used to eat Big Macs before soccer games. She's a world-class soccer player. Why? She needed the fuel to focus, stay clear. She needs that same Big Mac in our marriage. <laughs> so the, one of the, and I tell the people this, it's okay, it's not wrong to do this. What the disciples are doing is not wrong, it's natural, smart. I, I always make sure before we have a big argument that Allie has <laughs> something to eat. It's just, it's just smart, it's just practical. She's okay with me saying that. In fact, she told, I was asking her, can I talk about the Big Mac thing? And she's like, sure. And she said the funniest thing. She's sitting across the room. She says, it was all about the sauce. <laughs> she loves the sauce on the Big Mac. Like people, human beings need food. So this is what's literally happening. They walk up on this. One of the, the, what will become the, one of the most famous stories in, in the history of the world. And their part in the story is walking in. Looking at Jesus, amazed, perplexed, what is, what is he doing? He, he might ruin his reputation. What, what is he doing? And so the first thing they say is, he's delirious. He's lost it. Let's get him some food. <laughs> that's what's going on here. Let's make sure. I think that's why. That must be why he was talking to this woman. He must just be so hungry that, that his sense of right and wrong and his sense of rationality is off. I, I better get him a Big Mac. That's what's going on. It's, it's that simple. They're totally missing the spiritual. And they're only focusing on the physical. Just like who? Just like the woman at the well when she first starts talking to Jesus. So the disciples, who have all this experience with Jesus, they've seen him do all these amazing things. He's turned water into wine. And they still can't help but focus only on the physical and not see the spiritual. I love that. I love what John is doing here. He's saying everyone struggles with the same problem. Those who have been with Jesus for a while, those who have just met him. We always see the physical first and we miss the spiritual. That's what's going on. That's why it's hilarious. <laughs> Let's get him something to eat. Then he'll start making good decisions again. Okay. Let's keep reading. Verse 32. But he said to his disciples, 
Fellas, I love you, but I have food to eat that you don't know about. Wow. So the disciples have been with him. They've seen him turn water into wine. They've seen the way he's confronted the religious authorities, putting his life on the line. And so, yeah, they're going to get it. They're going to realize, oh, I, I, yeah, okay, we're having a spiritual conversation here. Let's see what they do. Verse 33. The disciples turned to one another and they looked. They're probably whispering. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? <laughs> Somebody sneak him in a ham sandwich? Probably not. He was Jewish. So they think somebody that is no longer there snuck him some food. That's why he says he's not hungry. The disciples are so dense. I'm so dense. I can't figure out what God's doing most of the time. But Jesus loves them all the more. He has something to teach them through all of this, even their foolishness. Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, the will of God, and to finish his work. Verse 35. Jesus is still talking. Don't you say, and he's talking about you as Jewish people, don't you guys say, don't you have a saying out there? There are still four more months and then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you, Jesus says. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ready for harvest. So one of our principles, look up. You're so busy focusing on things that aren't important, you forgot to look up and see the field is ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay, meaning the reaping has begun. There's no four more months. It's happening right now. They're already receiving pay. They're already gathering fruit for what kind of life? Eternal life. He's just said that to the woman. The kind of water I give you is water leading to eternal life, living water. You'll never thirst again. And he's using the same analogy now with food. So that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you did not labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Now this is the thing that they don't know is happening simultaneously. Jesus knows. Simultaneously, the woman is telling her testimony, witnessing to what she's encountered in the person of Jesus, that he might just be the Messiah, that he knew everything that she'd ever done and still loved her, and, and there is a horde of people, of Samaritans, the enemies of the Jews, coming, not to kick them out of their town, but to come and hear from their teacher, Jesus. Jesus knows this is happening. Someone has already sown that seed, and the harvest is literally walking out towards us, and you guys are talking about sandwiches. They don't get it yet. But that's what's going on. Split screen. Then John jumps back into the main flow of the woman's story. Look at it with me. Verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him. That's in Jesus. Because of what the woman said when she testified. She didn't know much. She told them everything she did know about this Jesus, and they believed, believed enough to come see more. This is what she testified, John says. He told me everything I ever did. And she probably elaborated on that. She probably confessed publicly. I know you all know that I've had five husbands, and the man I'm living with now is not my husband, but I met a man who told me that the water he gives will cleanse me from that sin and give me eternal life. He knew it all. Could it be the Messiah? And they saw the conviction in her eyes and they believed. So when the Samaritans came to him, they walked all the way out, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. Two days he taught. Two days he explained the scriptures. He explained who the Messiah was really meant to be. 
He explained how he is here, not just for the Jews, but also the Samaritans and all of the world, including the Gentiles. Verse 41, many more believe because of what Jesus said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you've said, since we have heard for ourselves from the word became flesh. We've heard from the word became flesh ourselves. And we now know that this really is the Savior Not of the Jews, not of the Samaritans, but of what? The world. Oh. Okay. There's our text. The question I want to ask you, it's the first question is, are you thirsty or are you hungry? Jesus basically does the same thing with the disciples that he did for the woman. The woman at the well was thirsty, and he gave her water to drink. What was the water? Salvation from her sin. The disciples had already received that from Jesus. They are now hungry. Are you thirsty or are you hungry? Sometimes it's hard to tell what you need from Jesus. Have you received the living water yet? If you haven't, you need to start with the water. If you don't have water, you'll die really quickly. If you don't have food, you can live a little bit longer. But eventually, you'll seek living. So you need both. You need water and food. But what do you need right now? You can't go straight to the water without the food. You need the water. The woman needed the water first, and she immediately went to the food. Because she was satisfied for her thirst, for salvation from her sin. She was made right with her God through reconciliation in Jesus. He accepted her. She received the free gift of grace. And she immediately left her water jar and started doing the work of the harvest, which is her food. The disciples don't get it. Yeah, they've already had their, their thirst quenched by Jesus. But they don't get how to satisfy hunger. Do you know how to satisfy your hunger or only your thirst? Do you come time and time again coming just drinking the water or do you ask God to give you the food that satisfies? That's what I'm trying to ask you. And if you don't know what you need, maybe that's why you're still so unsatisfied. So why isn't Jesus hungry? He tells them, because I have a food you know not of. What's the food? To do the work and the will of my Father. And when I participate in his work, which had been set before him, he had to go through Samaria because God the Father knew that this woman needed to encounter him in the whole village. And he went and he did his work and it satisfied him. Have you ever had that experience? Doing the work of the Lord, how it satisfies you. I've had that experience. Or it's strange how you don't get hungry. Just a quick example. Been to a lot of weddings in my life, both as just the guest of the wedding and also I officiate a lot of weddings. And when I officiate, and if I'm doing your wedding, just know this, I preach the gospel. <laughs> It's the work God's given me to do. And I preach it through the context of talking about marriage and how it reflects the love of God, all this stuff. And it's strange. Like when I go as a guest, you know what I'm always thinking? When's the food coming out? (laughs) I'm always hungry. I'm excited about the food. When I officiate a wedding, it's like I'm so satisfied and full from doing the work God's given me to do that that I, I enjoy the food, but I could care less. I'm not starving because the satisfaction that comes with doing the will of God and the work of God that he's given you to do quenches your hunger in a way that's hard to even explain. This happens in other areas. Like when I get jamming in staff meeting on some some revelation that God's given me, some consideration, and, and Ryan, you can ask Ryan and Ty about that, like, it's uncomfortable for them. Sometimes I'll just start preaching in a staff meeting, and it'll go for hours. 
You think these sermons are long. I mean, these things can go forever. And it's like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock. And lots of times, Ty, Ty likes to s- stick up for herself, which I appreciate. She says, Dave, i got to eat something. <laughs> you know, it's because I am filled with food that many don't know about, which is to know and encounter and do the work of God. Now, that doesn't mean that Ryan and Ty aren't doing the work of God. They are. But it's usually when I'm sort of caught up in some new exciting thing that God's put on my heart. They have the same issue as well. I'm sure you've encountered that. Have you had that experience? So, Jesus isn't lying. The hunger he had. The reason he sent them into town to get him food because he was actually hungry. But then he encountered the woman and God had other work for him to do. And when he did it, He wasn't hungry anymore. He's not lying to them. God fulfilled and satisfied the hunger in a way that he wasn't expecting. And he wants that same thing for his disciples who never miss a meal, who never miss lunch and breakfast. Guys, you're doing it wrong. I want you to experience this satisfaction that comes from doing the will of God. And I'm going to I want to teach you how to do that. And of course, Jesus long-sufferingly teaches them month after month, week after week, day after day, how to do the will of the Father. To the point where you encounter the same disciples in the book of Acts, after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and they're just like Jesus. You never see them eating much. (laughs) They're like, they're able to do things they never thought they could do. They still need to drink the water of Christ daily, but they can go a while without food because it's the satisfaction that comes with doing the will of God the woman gets it she's like the first to pass this class she leaves her water runs in and does God's work and Jesus says she's already reaping her reward (laughs) I love that this woman who they didn't even think Jesus should be talking about graduates before they even realize they're in class disciples don't get it maybe you haven't got it yet maybe you hear me talking you're like i've never had that experience of being satisfied by doing the work of god i want you to get that maybe you're in the room and you are still thirsting for salvation i don't want to miss i don't want you to just start doing the work of god until you have found that jesus quenches your thirst for salvation that's for all of you who are not yet christians in the room That's an okay place to be. You thirst for forgiveness from your sin. You're you're keeping God, like Jason said in his testimony, at arm's length because you're not sure he'll accept you. You need to receive his offer of living water and take it and drink and be made clean. Then you can pick up your shovel and start doing his work. So It's okay to thirst for salvation. You want to make sure that you're right with God, you're reconciled with God through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And he quenches that, and you know you're right now with God. And then immediately, just like the woman, begin to do his work, and he'll satisfy your hunger as well. Because here's the thing. Hunger is really meaning and purpose. Do you hunger for meaning and purpose? Do you feel like your life matters? It does. But maybe not for the reason you think it does. The woman was looking for meaning and purpose in all the wrong places. Through men. And ladies out there, men are a terrible place to find meaning and purpose. Except for one man. (laughs) This woman had six husbands and the seventh was the perfect husband. The perfect man, Jesus Christ. A husband, a boyfriend will not satisfy your longing for meaning and purpose. They can be a nice companion along the way to serving the one man, Jesus Christ. He will bring you meaning and purpose. Same goes for you guys. Finding the perfect woman will not satisfy your longing for meaning and purpose. They definitely won't quench your thirst for salvation, but they also won't quench your hunger for meaning and purpose. Only Jesus can quench both thirst and hunger. Nothing quenches the hunger. No amount of money, no amount of sex, no amount of influence or power, 
Nothing will satisfy that hunger. It will always be there. Talk to really rich people. It's there. Talk to people who are really good looking, like Ryan Farrell. Talk to people who have power and influence, and they hunger for meaning and purpose. They never satisfy because they're looking for it in the wrong place. Jesus came to satisfy your hunger, to show you the way to satisfy your hunger, which is doing the will of God the Father every day of your life. It's this supernatural bread that brings true life. So that's the first thing. What's the second thing? The work of God brings meaning and purpose into your life. Not physical food, no matter how good that food is. The second thing is, the work of God brings unity to the world in a way that nothing else can. Do you long for unity in the world? Do you know people who long for unity in the world? Like for the world to be united, for the races to be united, for Democrats and Republicans to be united, for denominations to be united. Do you long for it? I do. I want it. Everyone wants it. They they sense that's real life. What brings true unity? I remember talking to a friend of mine, uh, his name is Stephen. Stephen, first time he ever came to church was because he was walking from his house to Rancho Bravo, a Mexican restaurant on 45th, and the shortest way from his house to Rancho Bravo was through the Sedaris parking lot. Guess who was in the Sedaris parking lot? Me. Guess who was also? Some of you. Guess why? We had to be. Guess why we had to be? There was a global pandemic. (laughs) And we weren't allowed to be inside. We had to be there for Stephen. And he came and he heard us preach about the love of God and the four Greek words that mean God. And he had one of those four words tattooed on his arm. And he came up to me after the service. He said, I stopped. I heard you talking about love and eros and I've never been to church before, except for weddings, funerals. Can we talk more about this stuff? I said, sure. We met pretty regularly, once a month for the next six to eight months. He came and did a little bit of alpha with us. Stephen was a unique guy, an artist. And he told me one time, he said, all I've ever longed for is unity. I want the world to be united. He was pretty politically active. He said, I thought the way to that unity was through politics. He said, now talking to you, Dave, studying my Bible, Dave, I had given him a Bible, talking to his other friend he had who was uh, a Catholic priest, he said, I actually see it now. He said, I don't believe that Jesus is who he said he was, but I believe he's the only way to unite the world. It's the most amazing statement he said. He said, I see it now. It's got to be this story. It's the only way to unite the world. And I said, Stephen, you're right. And it's true. And it will only accomplish the uniting that it promises to accomplish and that you can see that it could accomplish if we come to realize it is true. Jesus is who he said he was. And later in our conversations, months later, Stephen said, Dave, I not only believe it's the story that unites, I also believe it's true. He had moved to Canada at this point, and he's off living his life, I'm sure, bringing people together who wouldn't otherwise be brought together. That was his life's work. Jesus' story, who he is and what he's done, is the only thing that can bring us the unity that we long for. That's what Jesus is saying here. Look, at, look, look again. When he gets into talking about this food, look what he says. Verse 36. He says, the reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. Now, you've got to understand this. These were often two different groups of workers, the ones that would sow the seed in the land, prepare the land, and those that would come in. They were the harvesters that would come in and gather the crop. 
Two different groups. Jesus says, actually, they'll rejoice together because of the work God's doing through me. Then he goes on to say, verse 37, For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. These aren't the same job. They're truly distinct, different jobs. I sent you, he sent to the disciples, to reap what you did not labor for. Others have labored, and you have benefited from their labor. So when you understand that all the work is God's work, you stop quarreling about, am I a reaper, am I a sower? And you start rejoicing together. It's all God's work. That's what unites the world. This isn't the only place. You don't have to turn there. We'll throw it on the screen. Amos 9.13. The prophet Amos predicting that the world would be united, that reapers and sowers would be united. is part of the prophecy of the coming of the kingdom of God into the world. He says this, Look, the days are coming, the prophet says. This is the Lord's declaration when the plowman will overtake the reaper. Well, that doesn't sound very good. What do you mean overtake? There's more plowing to do than reaping. And, he says it the flip way, and those who tread grapes, so that's the harvesters that tread the grape, turn it into wine, they will overtake the sower. So he says both sides. There's coming a day where there's so much work to be done that everybody's working and everybody's rejoicing. No one's saying, man, I wish there was more sowing to do. I'd have more stable job. Plenty of sowing to do. No one's saying, I wish there was more reaping to do and grape stomping to do. There's plenty of grapes to stomp. Because the fruit of eternal life is going out. God is working and we all work together to do his will. And that's what brings us together. It's Amazing. Two distinct works. No one's saying my work is more important than your work. No one's saying your work is more important than my work. Everyone's realizing that everybody's work is important because there's one work and that's God's work. If you're a student of Scripture, this sounds a lot like when we talk about the church. It's the body of Christ, and we're all different organs, and every organ's different. The liver doesn't do the same thing as the kidney. The kidney doesn't do the same thing as the stomach. We all have very distinct roles, but we're all doing one work, which is processing the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's beautiful. So the woman is the sower in this immediate scenario, but God is a sower in that he's been preparing the soil of those villagers so that when the woman comes and sows her testimony, puts it into the ground, it very quickly brings life. But Jesus says, but that doesn't, like you're about to see how true this is. They're going to come and they need to be discipled, just like I've been discipling you. The woman can't do that. Like, what, what, what one woman can do that. We need 12 dudes to do <laughs> the rest of the work. Like, that's supposed to be funny. Like, a woman can do 12 times more work than a man. That's just generally true in life. And it's generally true here. There's work to be done, and they can rejoice together. Now, don't miss this. If that's true, that the sower, Samaritan woman, and the reapers, the disciples will come together and rejoice together, what does that mean? Remember the disciples just a few verses ago. They show up and they're like, what's going on? Who is he talking to? Jesus says, now when you guys get it, you'll have your arm around her, you'll be rejoicing and singing praise to God. The woman that you didn't think I should be talking to, that you stayed away from because you thought she'd make you unclean and you were worried, you're going to be rejoicing with her. That's unity. That's what we long for. And of course the villagers then come. I'm sure the disciples are like, oh, there's the harvest he was talking about. I believe the disciples then helped Jesus in his work, discipling them, probably baptizing them, teaching them everything that they'd been taught. And this gospel partnership takes root. And two groups that, I, it, it's hard, you, you can't believe how much these groups hated each other. Like, think of the person you hate the most or the group you hate most and times it by 10. That's how much these two groups hated each other and now they're rejoicing together. That's what Jesus promises. All this hunger for meaning and purpose, he satisfies by giving you work to do. Work, this is why it's meaningful. You won't be hungry tomorrow because that work will last forever. 
The work they did this day, that's truly meaningful work. It has eternal fruit, Jesus says. We will get to see this fruit. There's been some people that have done some amazing things in this world. You probably don't even know their name, and most going forward will forget them. This woman's work, these disciples' work, on this day, we will all rejoice with them one day. That's incredible, meaning and purpose. And the unity it brings satisfies what we all long for, which is to be one people, one cry, one voice, because we have one Savior, Jesus Christ, and one God, and we work to do His will. That's the gospel. So, my final point here. This passage taught us about meaning and purpose. This passage has taught us about unity. And this passage will teach us, if we listen, we don't cover our eyes, it will teach us the necessity for and the proper practice of say it evangelism why do i say don't say it dave 40 in a recent barna poll and this is in 2019 before the pandemic the number's got to be off the charts now but before the pandemic barna which is a national research firm very reputable did a survey in the survey they asked practicing christians who are also in the generation referred to by sociologists as millennials. And most of you fall into that category. Though we've got some Gen Zers and some baby boomers, we love you too. But in what is a sedarist demographic, practicing Christian millennials, and to be a practicing Christian means through other questions in the survey, you had to identify yourself as a Christian, saying, I am a Christian. You had to agree strongly, so it's like strong, agree, strongly, you know, like it's the highest form of agreeing strongly, that, quote, your faith is very important in your life. I am a Christian. My faith is very important. I strongly agree with that statement. And then you also had to say that you attended church in the last month, which is a big deal. So these are practicing Christians. 47%, so almost half in the research group, said, and I quote, it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share that same faith. 47% said, I don't believe in evangelism. 47% said what the Samaritan woman did, probably wrong. Should have kept it to herself. 47%. Baffling. Every other one of you doesn't quite believe that evangelism is something we should be doing. Evangelism is not popular these days with our generation. Imagine sitting down with the Samaritan woman and asking her those same questions. Is it important for someone to share their beliefs with you, even if what they hope is that you might one day share their beliefs? What do you think she'd say? She'd break down in tears that you're even asking that question. What do you think the villagers would say if you asked them that question? Are you glad that the woman shared her beliefs and invited you to come and see? It's sort of like when you ask rich people if money's important. And then you ask poor people. Rich people say, money's not important. Poor people hear that and they say, of course you'd say that. You know where your next meal's coming from. Or you ask Washingtonians versus Californians. Is rain important? Of course, Washingtonians are like, I wish it rained less. Californians are like, I got to use recycled water, it's gross. I mean, I was just down there, it's seriously, it's, it's such soft water. 
You feel slimy. You only think, if you think this way, that evangelism is not important, you only think this because you've been evangelized. And you have such access to the gospel of Jesus Christ that you think it's unimportant. You have such access to the word of life, to living water. Stop letting your privilege blind you. There are people that have no forgiveness of their sin and they're living in guilt and shame. There are people who have no meaning and purpose in their life. They're chasing their own tail. There's people who long for unity and they're trying to find it through some other means that only leads to more division. They need the water. They need the food. Stop letting your privilege blind you. Such was one of I. I was blinded. Praise God, He woke me up. Evangelism is absolutely necessary. The Samaritan woman shows us this. And she shows us that you don't need a theological degree. You don't need deep biblical training. You don't need years of being a Christian. You don't need a fancy, well-crafted tactic to share the gospel. What do you need? Three things. A willing heart. Your personal story of what life before meeting Jesus and life after meeting Jesus is like. And you need courage. How much courage would it take to walk back to the people who have shunned you? think you're dirty and unclean and unworthy of God to walk in and say, I met a man who could help you. You need courage. Who only God knows. Only God knows how many millions and millions of people have come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior in part because of the Samaritan woman's story. A woman who's not only a woman, but a Samaritan who had six husbands before meeting her perfect husband in Jesus. How many millions upon millions of people have come to faith in part because of her story? And you don't think sharing your story is important? So that's the absolute necessity of evangelism. I hope I've convinced you. What's the proper practice? Three things. This passage shows us that evangelism requires you to die to your prejudices, to die to your personal beefs, to die to your biases in order to participate in the work of God. The woman does this. We've already talked about that. And the disciples are taught that they must do this if they too want to participate in the work of God. They have to see that every life is valuable. Of every tongue, of every nation, of every background, of every sin, no matter what you've committed, you're all valuable to participate in the work of God. You have to be able to see that. I love this text that shows us. Is there someone in your mind right now that you believe, and you know you believe it because you don't act upon it, you don't share what you know about Jesus and how he's changed your life from before and after. You're like, I don't think I want them to know. Is there someone, is there some group of people, is there some sin habit group of people that you refuse or don't think deserves to know the good news of Jesus? Somebody come to your mind right now? Repent. Ask God to forgive you. Jesus forgave the disciples. He allowed them to reap the harvest that they did not sow. What a privilege. The people that you said aren't worthy, Jesus still lets you reap that harvest. But you've got to repent. You've got to say, I was wrong. I am wrong. My heart is wrong. Fix my heart, God. All people everywhere, no matter what they've done, are worthy to hear the good news about Jesus. 
Some of the people that saw me come in this morning clapping and dancing now know why. I get to talk about evangelism. (laughs) Oh, that's why David was so happy when he walked in. Second thing about the proper practice. I'm going to actually read from uh, Charles Swindoll, pastor, theologian, commentary. He writes this. If you are to participate in the work of God, you must stop being consumed with the mundane details of life. The disciples couldn't stop thinking about food long enough to notice that their ma- of their master's excitement. They left him weary, hungry, and thirsty from traveling when they went to go get the food and returned to find him brimming with energy. Anyone with the least bit of perceptive ability should have set aside the food and asked the Lord what made him so cheerful. But not those self-serving, short-sighted disciples. We spend, I was talking to us, we spend most of our day dealing with the so-called necessities of life, fixing meals, keeping schedules, making a living. When it is the la- uh, sorry, when is the last time that you set aside time to make specific plans to share the good news at work or with somebody that you've become friends with or your neighborhood or your community? We get so hunkered and focused in on the mundane details of life. And honestly, in a city like this, we love food, food even, that we forget why we make a meal in the first place, to share it with others. Food's not bad. It's a means to a better end, a conversation about life and purpose and unity and meaning, which can be found in Jesus Christ. Third thing, evangelism is lulled to sleep by procrastination, by procrastination induced by the promise of tomorrow. Jesus said to his disciples, you've heard it said four months and then comes the harvest. Harvest, I say, the head of the wheat is white, the time is now. You don't know what tomorrow holds. This is the message I needed to learn. You guys know my story. My sister died when she was 26 years old. I was always waiting for tomorrow to share about the life that God had changed yesterday. Then my sister died. And she sent a message through the Spirit of God, and it came to me, and she asked me to ask her friends, who she'd never shared with about her faith, ask them to consider Jesus. And then she said, and tell them not to wait Don't wait another minute to start considering. We have no idea about tomorrow. We only know about today. Who do you need to call and text and tell them that you love them today? Who do you need to invite to dinner today? You don't know if tomorrow's coming. For you, for them, for anyone. In conclusion, that's how you know you can start thinking about food. In conclusion, (laughs) okay. Life does not have meaning and purpose. Unity, global, citywide, inter-everything is not possible without Jesus Christ. It is not possible. Only time will tell. But I'm telling you, Jesus has already told us. Will you trust him? Will you follow him? Will you model your life after his? He is the unifier, the savior of the world, the giver of meaning and purpose that lasts into eternity. And this morning, I don't understand it. A song popped into my head. This could be genetic because my dad, this happens to him all the time could be or it could be the spirit of god a song popped into my head that i hadn't listened to for quite some time some of you probably have never heard of it we're going to play it at the end of the service <laughs> like after when we're just chatting so you can listen then if you want 
And I was like, why did this pop into my head? So I went and I listened to it, and then I got super excited. But I couldn't really understand the lyrics because the lead singer also was a lead singer of Blink-182, so he mumbles a lot, if you know who Blink-182 is. He left Blink-182 2005 to start a new band called Angels and Airwaves. And one of the songs, one of their only songs really that became like truly popular is a song called The Adventure. The Adventure. And so I was like, I can't really tell what he's singing. The music's getting me really excited. So I looked up the lyrics. I want, you, I want to read you the lyrics. I think this is why God brought it to my mind. The lyrics go like this. I want to have the same last dream again. Like when you're sleeping in the last dream, before you wake up. The one where I wake up and I'm alive. You want to be alive? Just as the four walls closed in on me. He's talking about his dream. My eyes are opened up with pure sunlight. I'm the first to know, my dearest friends, even if your hope has burned with time, you have little hope left. If you think there's no meaning and purpose in the world, even if that's you, I was the first to know. Anything that's dead shall be regrown, and your vicious pain, your warning sign, you will be fine. Hey, yo. Here I am. And here we go. Life's waiting to begin. I was just thinking to myself. Hey, yo. Picture the disciples. Hey, you want some food, Jesus? That was weird talking to the... He's like, hey, yo. Here I am. I am. The beginning and the end. The alpha, the omega. I am that I am. God told Moses, here I am, Jesus said. Here we go. Life's waiting to begin. You guys ready for your life to begin? Then the song gets really cool, really jammy. I'll just skip to the end. It says, hey, yo, (laughs) here I am. Here we go. Life's waiting to begin. Then he says this, I cannot live, I cannot breathe, Unless you do this with me. Can you picture Jesus saying, Hey yo, life's waiting to begin. Here we go. I can't breathe. I can't do this alone. I need you to do it with me. That God needs us to do it with him. That he's chosen to attach himself to humanity and his plan to us doing it with him is something we'll never understand. All we can say is, I'm in. So I'll stand here and I'll say, Here I am. Here we go. Our life's waiting to begin. But I can't breathe and I can't do it alone. I can't do it unless you do it with me as I do it with Jesus. That's the work of God. Life will never be boring. Life will never be dull. Life will never be easy. But it's the adventure that he calls us to. Are you with me? Let's pray.